Never in the history of the post-ABC poll have two major party nominees been viewed as harshly as Clinton and Trump. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Amy Goodman on AJ+, Counterspin, Lee Camp on Redacted Tonight, Start Making Sense from The Nation magazine, The Majority Report, This Week in Blackness, and The Young Turks. Whether it's Fox or MSNBC or CNN, you often can't tell the difference. You're flipping from one channel to another, and they're all Trump all the time. It's Trumpland. I see the media as a huge kitchen table that stretches across the globe, that we all sit around and debate and discuss the most important issues of the day, war and peace, life and death, and anything less than that is a disservice to a democratic society. It is critical in an election year to hear how policies affect people on the ground, not to get the pundits, but to get the people themselves. They're bringing you the pundits, and this is true on all the networks, the pundits, who know so little about so much, explaining the world to us and getting it so wrong. The media manufactures consent for war, for candidates in elections, by bringing you more, for example, of one person, like Donald Trump. He is pumped into everyone's home. He can just stay in a gold-gilded mansion in New York or one of them in Florida. The rest of the candidates trudge from one state to another. Why does he get this unfiltered uh, pipeline into everyone's brain, into your eyes, into your consciousness. It matters. The Tyndall Center did a report in 2015. They looked at the whole year. They found Donald Trump got 23 times the coverage of, say, Bernie Sanders. They found ABC World News Tonight did something like 81 minutes on Donald Trump. And I think they gave Bernie Sanders 20 seconds. Bernie Sanders is breaking every record. It's the only reason he's getting any coverage right now. I mean, the media, he is shaming the media. In March, he raised something like $44 million. Hillary Clinton raised 29 and change million dollars. $44 million, that hasn't been done before. You break every record and there's a blip in the corporate media radar screen. It just shows how astounding it would be if he got anything near the coverage of the other candidates could you imagine where he would be right now? In this high-tech digital age, with high-definition television, digital radio, all we get is static. That veil of distortion and lies and misrepresentations and half-truths that obscure reality. When what we need the media to give us is the dictionary definition of static, criticism, opposition, unwanted interference. We need a media that covers power, not covers for power. We need a media that is the fourth estate, not for the state. And we need a media that covers the movements that create static and make history. He was struck by static. He became a believer and now he's slamming down doors. 
Presidential elections have a way of bringing to surface some core tenets of corporate media's conventional wisdom. One such pearl was expressed by David Shribman, a former New York Times political writer, now executive editor at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, in a May 21st Times op-ed. It's about what Shribman calls Clintonism, the political creed that defined Bill Clinton's presidency. Quote, celebrated by its supporters as a synonym for peace, prosperity, and a common-sense centrism, Clintonism was and is still derided by its detractors on the left as corporatism and on the right as a shorthand for scandal and impeachable offenses, close quote. Say what you will is the upshot. Clintonism was an effort to pull the Democratic Party, which had lost five of the six presidential elections between 1968 and 1988, back into political relevance. And even though when he left office, many liberals felt bruised, quote, no one doubted that he had given new life to the party when he left office in 2001, close quote. It's hard to overstate how badly some people want to believe this idea that by pulling the party to the right, Clinton, sure, threw some folks under the bus, but salvaged their prospects, if only they knew, by saving the Democratic Party. So it's worth looking back at actual events. Bill Clinton came into office with 258 Democratic House members, at the time a fairly typical number. The Democrats had controlled the House every Congress but two since 1931. Then came Clinton's triangulation, which, as Shribman tells, allowed him to pass, quote, major parts of his agenda from a trade deal with Mexico and Canada to welfare reform to a crime bill, close quote. These constituency losing moves led directly to the 1994 midterm massacre in which the Democrats lost 52 seats and control of the House. Clinton came in with 57 Democratic senators and lost nine of those seats in the 94 midterms. Since then, the Senate has been mostly Republican-controlled. From the late 50s onward, Democrats had a big advantage in state houses that continued almost unbroken through the Nixon and Reagan eras. That ended in 1994. Since then, party control of state legislatures has on balance favored Republicans. So in real terms, Clintonism has been a disaster for Democrats. But those ideas, reducing aid to the poor, favoring corporate prerogatives are just too appealing to some media elites for them to face that fact. NBC did something pretty crazy the other day. They finally revealed their true colors. The truth about their efforts to manipulate this election for Hillary Clinton against Bernie Sanders, that, that, that truth, that reality, accidentally sprayed out of Chris Matthews' out-of-control face holes. I'm told by the experts on numbers around here at NBC and elsewhere that come uh, June 7th, the day of the California primary, which your candidate, I, I totally understand, wants to get to and maybe have a chance of knocking off Hillary at that event, a big last hurrah, that at 8 o'clock that night Eastern time, uh, the networks will be prepared, including this one, to announce that Hillary Clinton has now 
gotten over the top, that she will have won the nomination in numbers. It's done. What will that do to turn out if that's five o'clock Pacific time with three more hours to vote in California? Who will be least likely to vote? Sanders people from five to eight people or Hillary? I've heard both theories. First of all, by even asking this question in this way, by phrasing like this, Matthews is hoping to suppress voting. He is saying, we already know it's over. We're going to announce it's over. Don't vote. All right. Number two, he's admitting that MSNBC plans to fraudulently declare a winner. Hillary Clinton absolutely will not be the winner on June 7th because superdelegates don't vote until the convention. You got it, Chris? You get it? So unless, so unless Bernie Sanders disappears because he got back into his time machine and returned to whichever future civilization sent him here to try desperately to save us from electing a fucking reptile. Unless, unless that happens, Hillary will not get the nomination on June 7th. Three, Matthews is also admitting that MSNBC's announcement will likely influence the vote in California. He's saying, hey, uh, uh, Jeff, uh, so, so we're gonna, we're gonna fuck up the vote in California. How you feel about that? Is that cool? Not cool? <laughs> and Bernie's campaign manager, Jeff Weaver, then tried to explain to Matthews that he has the mental capacity of beef jerky. <laughs> and that superdelegates are not counted yet. All we have from superdelegates is essentially a poll. You aren't allocating delegates based on a poll in California, yeah. but you are allocating delegates based on a poll of superdelegates. Jeff, okay, I don't want to have this conversation. No, no. Why would you? Why would you? I, I don't want to have this conversation. I don't want to talk about how the entire premise of everything I'm saying is f***ing stupid. I don't. Nope, not one bit. MSNBC, I, are, are you guys involved in some kind of wager as to whether it's possible for you to make Fox News look smart? Because I think you could win it. I think you could win. Will you win? It's your show. So what's it gonna be? Cause people will tune in How many train wrecks do we need to see Before we lose touch of And we thought this was low Well it's bad getting worse oh. Where'd all the good people go? I've been changing channels I don't see them on the TV shows Where'd all the good people go? For a socialist feminist who is not voting for Hillary, we turn to Liza Featherstone. She's a contributing editor to The Nation, where she writes the advice column, Asking for a Friend. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Ms. and Rolling Stone, among many other outlets. She's the author of Selling Women Short, the landmark battle for workers' rights at Walmart. And she's the editor of a new book, False Choices, the Faux Feminism of Hillary Clinton, forthcoming from Verso Books this spring. We reached her today in New York City. Liza Featherstone, welcome. Thank you, John. Well, if you look at Hillary's campaign website, she says, 
I am a proud lifelong fighter for women's issues because I firmly believe what's good for women is good for America, close quote. And she's got a big section on what she would do for women, especially poor women, if she were elected. She says she would work to close the pay gap. She would fight for paid family leave. She would make quality, affordable childcare a reality for families. I'm quoting here. She would increase the minimum wage. Of course, most low-wage workers are women. And she says she would defend and enhance Social Security. That sounds like some good reasons for a socialist feminist to support Hillary, but, but you don't. Why not? Well, um, yes, th- those are some nice-sounding um, positions on her website. And one of the reasons is that I think it's always more helpful to look at a candidate's record than to look at the positions that he or she puts out um, on her website. And one of the problems, and you know, Hillary's defenders are always pointing to her vast um, experience in government. So it's actually a great idea for us to um, take a look at that experience. And um, and some of the things that she's actually um, done have been um, quite horrible for poor women. In the um, in Bill Clinton's administration, she um, was she was a close advisor, and when he signed the um, Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act, which is called mostly known to those of us normal people as welfare reform, and Hillary advocated that. Um, there were other voices in the Clinton administration who said, no, that's going to um, cause a lot of hardship to poor women and their children. And Hillary advocated it, and she defended it years later by saying, you know, look, those uh, those poor women were quote-unquote deadbeats, quote, sitting around the house doing nothing, which is not a very socialist feminist way of looking at the uh, raising of children and um, the important work that women do in their families. So it's really important to look at things like that, to look at what she's actually done as opposed to what she says she'll do. And, of course, more recently, Hillary has been Secretary of State for Barack Obama. She is proud to say uh, she uh, supported military inventions that she said would help free women from oppression. For example, oppression from the Taliban in Afghanistan. Do you think it was good to try to free women from Taliban oppression? Well, it certainly sounds good. I mean, when you read about the Taliban, they sound horrible. And the um, life of women under the Taliban is indeed oppressive. However, um, it doesn't seem as if life for women in Afghanistan um, has gotten significantly better um, as a result of these uh, interventions. And as Secretary of State, these kinds of um, th- these impulses toward more war, more intervention. Again, this is something where um, we see Hillary being a voice of more harsh measures, more um, more punitive policies, more aggression in contexts where there were a wide range of voices and um, and debates w- within the administration. I think this is the same in the Obama administration as it was in the Clinton administration. And there's a, a rich feminist tradition, not only socialist feminists, but a, a wide range of, of, of feminists ha- um, have often 
tended to oppose war and um, you know militarization on the grounds. Um, well, on many humanitarian grounds, but at least partly on the grounds that it always makes life worse for women. And during uh, Hillary Clinton's tenure as Secretary of State, we see rape and femicide increase in Honduras, Iraq, and Libya um, due to interventionist policies that she herself nurtured and executed. So again, I think it's it's fair to look at her experience, and it's fair to look at, to judge that experience by its results. And you also uh, argue in The Nation magazine that there's a very specific reason for not supporting Hillary uh, in 2016, and that is there is a much better alternative available to Democrats as yeah. a candidate in the primaries. Yeah, there really is. And to be honest, um, I don't think I'd feel so strongly about attacking Hillary if there was no good, um, you know, feminist progressive alternative um, to her. But the thing is, there really is. I mean, you know, Bernie Sanders has um, a long record of fighting for exactly the sorts of things that genuinely make women's lives better. I mean, things like socialized medicine, free college tuition, reproductive health care, not only in the sense that you support abortion rights as a, you know, through um, through slogans or words or legalisms, but because you actually make it part of a Medicare for all uh, health care um, system, Bernie Sanders is a much better candidate than we usually have running for president in the United States. And, and that the contrast with the kinds of um, policies he advocates and the kinds of um, policies that Hillary Clinton has um, fought for all her life, there's really um, no contest. Hillary's defenders say uh, Bernie is not going to win the nomination and he could never win the presidency. He's a 74-year-old socialist from Vermont. This is un untenable and unacceptable in American politics that compromises are necessary, that politics is the art of the possible. Uh, Bernie could never be elected and therefore you should support Hillary. What do you say to that argument? Um, I find it so strange that people use that argument in a primary, which in many places is polling rather closely. I mean, and you know, and 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 that people would say that about a candidate who has been attracting uh, astonishingly large crowds. But more importantly, I also think that you know, it's that kind of. Um, it's it's that kind of defeatism that continues to perpetuate and nourish mediocre politicians like Hillary Clinton. You know, that when we constantly say, oh, we just can't do any better, or to quote Margaret Thatcher, there is no alternative, um, that's what we get. I mean, it is sort of that kind of pessimism is, really, um, is really self-defeating, and I'd much rather see our... Um, our prominent pundits and intellectuals and journalists think, um, well, what kinds of um, what kinds of arguments and ideas might support all those hardworking people on the ground who are actually trying to create an alternative um, rather than to shut them down? Things could be stranger, but I don't know how. I'm going to change this now. 
could spend a lifetime trying to figure it out. I'm going through changes now that have just begun under a purple sun. There's many reasons we are what we've become. I'm going through changes, ripping out pages. I'm going through changes now. All right, let's. I want to go to this this clip from uh, Noam Chomsky before we go into the fun half. Uh, Michael played this on the member show uh, the other day, and uh, I, I, it, it's worth playing on the uh, on the free show because um, uh, for two reasons. One, this is a great description of what what politics really are. A and B. how uh someone who is whose politics couldn't be uh further from Hillary Clinton at least in the context of this country i think uh but makes a decision to vote in a pragmatic and practical way and makes it clear that voting is not about self expression All right, here he is, uh, Noam Chomsky on with a- Amy Goodman. His latest book, Who Rules the World. So um, that's an interesting question for 2016, since the president of the United States occupies a very powerful role in the world, Noam. Who do you support? Well, before answering that, let me just make one comment on elections. They're important. It does matter who sits in the White House. Who's, uh, who appoints Supreme Court justices, uh, who makes decisions about war and peace, uh, uh, about environment and so on, matters who's in Congress, matters who's in the state legislatures and so on. It matters, but it's not the main issue. We are kind of indoctrinated here into focusing all of our attention on energy, on where, what button we push on in, in November every couple of years, which is not insignificant, but not the main issue. The main issue, what is, what are the forces, uh, domestic forces that are pressuring, acting to determine the kind of the choices that will be made, legislation will be passed and so on. All right. So just to be clear here, what he's saying is that, yeah, the personalities that you elect have some import. Person A versus person B is relatively important. But what's more important are the forces that they represent in the context of what they do in office. This is a subtle difference, but it is a difference between just the individual and the forces that have access and the ability to move that individual when they're in office, right? I mean, because this is a guy who's not only to the left of Hillary Clinton, but to the left of Bernie Sanders, at least where Bernie Sanders is in his public life. I have no idea where he is privately, and I would imagine he's definitely to the left of Hillary Clinton, both publicly and privately. Um, so this is the, this is the, the fundamental point that, that Chomsky's making here. Now, of course, there's one force that's always going to be there, private, concentrated capital, 
corporate power. Uh, lobbyists, uh, corporate lawyers, and so on, writing the legislations, uh, so, you know, they're always funding the elections, they'll always be there. The question is, is there going to be a countervailing force? Is there going to be a force representing popular interests, needs, and concerns, defending themselves against what in fact is a standard class-based assault against them? The, and now elections can be used as a way of galvanizing and mobilizing the kinds of groups which will, could become uh, persistent, uh, uh, dedicated, growing, constant forces that uh, influence significantly what's done in the White House and Congress. Uh, the New Deal legislation of Roosevelt, for example, wouldn't have been passed. It wouldn't have even been initiated without militant labor action and other political action. And uh, uh, th those are lessons to remember. But now going back to who should you push the button for? Well, my own... Pause it. So before we get to who you should push the button for, he's saying that corporate powers will always be there. And that's regardless of whether or not it's Hillary or Bernie or Trump or Paul Ryan or Gary Johnson or Jill Stein. These corporate forces are not going to go away. There's no way that Bernie Sanders gets into office and outlaws corporations. And even if he gets to a point the next two, three Supreme Court justices, they're never going to outlaw corporations. <laughs> Can they diminish the power of corporations? Perhaps. But ultimately, it's going to be outside forces that must be persistent. In other words, this is an ongoing fight. You know, part of what I think is frustrating to me about the whole Bernie or bust thing is this notion that like, all we got to do is get Bernie in office and then, then we're, then we're done. It's fixed, man. No, this is just an ongoing fight. It's an ongoing fight. And the point is, how do you just get enough so that you can on different issues, you can push back against that always present corporate moneyed establishment force, whatever you want to call that. All right, let's get to his pick. In the primaries, I would prefer Bernie Sanders. If Clinton is nominated and it comes to a choice between Clinton and Trump uh, in a swing state, a state where it's going to matter which way you vote, I would hold. I would vote against Trump, and by elementary arithmetic, that means you hold your nose and you vote Democrat. Uh, I don't think there's any other rational choice. Abstaining from vote, voting, uh, or say voting for, say a, a candidate you prefer, a minority candidate, uh, just amounts to a vote for Donald Trump, which I think is a devastating prospect for reasons I've already mentioned. So. But meanwhile, do the important things. 
uh, the significance of the Sanders campaign, which is pretty remarkable, I think, and certainly surprised me. Uh, it's, it's not radical. I mean, Sanders himself is pretty much a traditional New Deal Democrat. I don't say that in criticism. That uh, doesn't pretend to be anything else, and that's a breath of fresh air in the current uh, generally right-wing climate. Uh, but uh, the importance of it is if it can be used, this energy and enthusiasm that's been organized and mobilized can be used to develop an ongoing popular movement, which will be a powerful force, no matter who's in office, to influence and direct the country in ways that are uh, absolutely necessary, even for survival at this point. Uh, that's my view of it. Elementary arithmetic. That means it's really elementary, and it's just math. And solve using math each and every single day. Subtract a stack, put it back. That could help you prove it back. Think it by digits, sitting still or if you fidget. When you shop at the mall and take a walk on a path, can't help but yell, we're doing the math. One plus one equals two. Do they need to see eight years of, bu- of a Bush-type presidency before they realize how fucked up shit can get because I remember for those eight like the eight years of Bush is what pushed me into politics yeah. like that's when I started first reading like Salon and all of it you know Fire Dog Lake and all of these blogs like that was sort of the rise of like blogging 1.0 mm. with all of these liberal and progressive blogs that that were formed out of opposition to George Bush right yeah and so I spent a lot of time just reading that was still when I used to read comment sections just reading and just taking oh, wow. in and trying to figure out all of this shit and if that's if that's something that millennials need to go through before they will get off their ass and vote, then God, I hope it's I hope it's not this year. I hope it's not. I hope we don't have to live through four or eight years of Donald Trump before people realize, oh, so you mean if I just let the other guy win, then in eight years a progressive Phoenix is not going to rise out of the ashes? Because because every every electoral cycle, it seems like there are a group of people who believe that if shit just gets bad enough in this country. People are going to wake up and realize we can't do this anymore. And people, and that just, that's just not going to happen. But see, I think, and even if it were a thing that were to happen, the people who are going to be fucked over the most while that is happening, black and brown people, right. mm-hmm. women, and that's just not a risk that I'm willing to take. Because right. I think that actually there is some truth to that idea, right? Like, I think we got an Obama because we had a Bush, oh, right? Yeah. Like, we got somebody. But, but the people who want this progressive phoenix to rise from the ashes, Obama isn't that, enough for them. Well, yeah, you know and I mean? <laughs> and like they're not going to like again like the trauma of it won't be played out on their bodies, right? right. These white cis Bernie or bro buzz dudes are not going to have to live with the outcomes of a Trump presidency. Uh, and so I think Bernie or bust is stupid. I'm going to say that much. Like even with it. you know even and you know like I would say I'm far more aligned politically with Bernie than I am with Hillary Clinton, yeah, yeah. but. But it it ain't Bernie or bus. It's anything but Trump. Right. <laughs> it's it's what I'm not gonna do is watch my Latino brothers and sisters be 
deported. I'm not going to watch my Muslim and brothers and sisters be continue to be profiled. Or not going to watch all of the federal protections that the Obama administration put in place. To LGBT people, for example. Be rolled back. Especially because now we're talking so much about trans people. Like, that's the thing. People, you know, uh, uh, Terrell Starr for Fusion wrote an article where he interviewed several black activists about why it is that they're not voting. Mm -hmm. And I've always said, I understand when you are coming from a position of oppression, why you might decline to participate in a system that is contributing to your oppression. I get that. Mm -hmm. However, I look at trans folks. I look at the, the fact that trans people are literally fighting to be able to take a shit in a bathroom. And I think to myself, I cannot be complicit in any way in a system that takes those rights, that, away. those rights away. And so I live in California. It doesn't fucking matter how I vote. But if I live in Ohio or Florida or another swing state and I'm a disaffected black activist, I'm still voting because I'm voting for protection for trans people. Right. And that's really, I would feel guilty not voting in order. Be, I agree. I, and I feel like there are a lot of times like, and I think a lot of times people have become disaffected with this idea about lesser of two evils. Mm. We're like, oh, you know, that's not a good way to run a political that's system. Not. Like that's not a good, but it is really because right. if you are a trans person, the lesser of two evils could be being able to use the bathroom or committing suicide. Right. right. And those are the blanket facts. And so I would urge anyone who is listening to the show right now who might be a Bernie Sanders fan and disaffected with the political system to think about anyone that you know that is lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, brown, brown, black, whatever, and think, can you really, can you really consign those people to a life under Donald Trump? And what they don't, I think that that you hit on a really relevant thing that I will, I will say I'm absolutely, I was absolutely complicit in, in, in that is being so, so um, ignorant of the political process that you don't realize that all these things that you have been coasting on for the last eight years can change. Easily, Quickly. easily, and, like and, and that, literally, the, the like these executive orders will be undone the, within the first right, two the, days. The fight to get them was actually the hard part. Mm-hmm. Repealing them is not it's the hard simple. part <laughs> because they had to fight so hard to get them that they already have their opposition They're in line, waiting for you to sign that paper to take it away. Yeah, and 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 I think that we go, we go. Well, things have changed. Things are so different. Our our lives are so different. And it's like yes, because they put rules in place, laws and rules in place, but those things are negotiable. Mm-hmm. That is what the democracy is about. Like, that is unless what this is about unless the protection is at a constitutional, constitutional level, level. Right. you ain't got yeah. nothing. And that's how why I've been writing so much change. lately right. about how it is. Like, where can how can we get to a place where we get the Supreme Court to look at trans people and lesbian and gay people and say you are a protected class under the equal protection clause, and there's nothing any of these other motherfuckers can do right. about it? Because right now, the only thing protecting, for example, trans, lesbian, gay people in the workplace is an executive order. Right. That's it. Executive orders can be gone like that. And if we can't protect the weak, how can we call ourselves strong? Is the assurance that they seek so beyond us all? Hillary will have to do something different to beat Donald Trump. Appealing for moderation is not going to work this year. That's what Bruce Shapiro says. He's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation and executive director of the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma. It's a global resource center and think tank for journalists covering violence, conflict, and tragedy. 
He's co-author of the book Legal Lynching, The Death Penalty in America's Future with the Reverend Jesse Jackson and Jesse Jackson Jr. And his most recent book is Shaking the Foundations, 200 Years of Investigative Journalism in America. He also teaches investigative journalism at Yale. He lives in New Haven, but we reached him today in County Clare, Ireland. Bruce Shapiro, welcome to the program. Very glad to be here. So Donald Trump has taken over the Republican Party, but you say his electoral appeal, at least at this point, remains pretty narrow. A lot of our friends aren't so sure about that. Uh, your evidence comes from the primaries. What are the primaries, show? Presidential primaries, even the most intense presidential primary like this one, truth be told, is an affair that appeals only most of the time to the most motivated voters. And that is absolutely true this year. If you look, for instance, at Connecticut, where I vote, Trump, it's true, absolutely shattered Cruz and Kasich, the last uh, Republicans left standing at that point. But he absolutely smashed them with a very small electorate, with 123,000 votes in a state of more than 2 million people. In, with more than 400,000 registered Republicans. So you're really still talking at this point about Trump having an appeal to a fairly narrow, angry, resentful electorate that sees him, hears him as symbolizing something. It, the same thing is true state after state. Indiana, the, the end of the uh, Republican primary process, the same thing. Um, yeah, he did a little better than Mitt Romney, but in a state where 4 million plus people could have participated as Republican voters, uh, he got 500 something thousand votes. Um, you know, he is still a factional candidate. People who feel angry at what they see as the privileges accruing to minorities and immigrants, people often who feel economically displaced and who feel angry as well at elites in the media, elites in the political system. This is a permanent, enduring feature of American politics. And there's not a lot of evidence yet that Trump has found a way to go past that, at least not in the primary vote thus far. Okay, Trump supporters are a small number of uh, people given the total voting population or even the total number of Republicans. And the primaries have been, as you put it, spectacularly low turnout events. Are you saying there's no way Trump can win in November? The path for Trump to win is very specific and very narrow. And it, it requires him essentially to turn the general election which usually attracts much larger turnout, into a primary, to so turn off voters, to so turn off people across the spectrum, uh, so disgust voters, that in unprecedented numbers, people stay home. What Trump can, wants to bank on, I think, is a campaign of such protracted hideousness, such ugliness, leaving in key swing states that resentment faction as a pivotal factor. That is, the, I think, the real danger. And what that says to me 
is that anyone, whether a Hillary supporter, a Bernie supporter, or for that matter, Republicans, who wants to, who actually want to defeat Trump, need to look at voter participation, voter turnout as the key this fall. Your new piece at thenation.com shocked a lot of us when you declared that Trump is running a campaign not just of racism and resentment. You say Trump is also running a campaign of ideas. What, what exactly are these ideas? Well, look, it's clearly not the, 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 the ideas are not the ideas of a wall or, or the ideas, uh, you, you can't call it an idea that Muslims should be barred from the United States. I mean, that is, that's a fascist nationalist idea, and I suppose we could claim that. But really the I, idea that he is banking on and winning on uh, is that the Republican Party, that the Republican electorate, he, he would argue, and his campaign implicitly argued, has changed. That the what have been taken for the last generation as, here's what it means to be a Republican, which is essentially agreeing with Ronald Reagan. Do we agree with Ronald Reagan on uh, on, on uh, social conservatism, you know, hatred of feminism, hatred of gay rights, etc.? Do we, and, 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 and uh, with the evangelicals on that, do we agree with Ronald Reagan on robust military spending and American unilateral muscle flexing around the world? And do we agree with Ronald Reagan on deregulation, shrinking the state, unleashing uh, unregulated global capital as the greatest force for good? If we agree with those things, we're Republicans. Well, um, the truth is, what Trump understands and what his rivals this year did not is that that era is past, that the huge inequality and economic displacements of the last year, few years have uh, unleashed, it should be said, first by Bill Clinton, who was trying to ape Reagan in a democratic way in the 90s, um, that, that the forces of globalization have so displaced many Americans that whether they end up on the right or the left, the idea of unfettered capital is no longer quite so appealing. Um, social conservatism, its day is past. Marriage equality is the law of the land. Most Americans don't care about it. We're in a libertarian age where the war on drugs is seen as a bipartisan a problem needing bipartisan fixing, etc. And as for military spending, George Bush fixed that with the Iraq war. Um, you know, this is a, we are now in a, Trump would argue, a period for a new nationalist, nativist, isolationist uh, republicanism. And, of course, he already has taken several different stands on the minimum wage, on global trade, and so on. He is not an adherent of any of these views. And look, from a historic point of view, Trump is not wrong. There was a period in the early to mid-'80s when Reagan Republicans solidified their control over the Republican Party by purging, and I remember this well, by purging um, all those non-Reaganite Republicans from various state parties. Well, that was what it has meant to be a Republican for a generation, but Trump understood that that is over. Cruz, Kasich, Jeb Bush, None of them did. If any of those Republicans, if any of this year's alternative candidates had stepped out in front on globalization or stepped out in front on, let's say, abortion rights and said, you know, we're a big party, we can accommodate argument on this, 
uh, Trump would not have the traction that he did. They all, the rest of them all thought it's still 1985. Trump understood this is 2016. Okay, Reaganism is over. Very powerful argument, at, at least in the candidacy of Trump. And this provides a, a golden opportunity for the Democrats. Hillary clearly has been thinking about what to do in this situation after Trump triumphed in Indiana, she announced a new campaign theme. She said, quote, let's get off the red or the blue team. Let's get on the American team, close quote. The the blue team, that's that's the Democrats. That's the people she needs to vote for her. Why is she saying, let's get off the blue team? Look, I think uh, Hillary Clinton is making a historic mistake. She's doing it because what Trump has set up for her is what, in my nation piece I call, the, the Clinton comfort zone. Um, you know, going back to 1992, the Bill Clinton electoral strategy and the core belief of many of those still closest to the Clintons is that the Democratic Party of the 1970s and 80s erred by swinging too far to the left. And the only way you can win is by essentially co-opting moderate Republican positions or even not so moderate Republican positions on issues like uh, crime, uh, hence the crime bill of 1994, on issues like national security, hence Senator Clinton and Secretary Clinton's uh, more hawkish interventionist stance compared with Barack Obama, the vote for the Iraq war and so on. The pitch to the right is the classic Clintonian move. And Hillary Clinton finds herself in a familiar place now making that pitch. This is a, a grave historic error. The lessons of the Bernie Sanders campaign, the lessons of the Trump campaign, the lessons of this strange political year are that we have an electorate that is focused on inequality, uh, that pitching to the right isn't going to fix that. We have an electorate that has been, that has suffered a young electorate, especially that has suffered repeated betrayals uh, of the social contract in, in the form of the economic crisis of 2008 uh, and the Iraq war. And those folks, are looking for a strong, principled assertion of the social contract. That's what they've gotten accustomed to under Barack Obama, whatever his flaws and errors. He is a candidate who has consistently uh, presented us with a set of guiding principles about how Americans relate to one another, what we owe to one another as a society, like health care. Um, and, and has had a kind of consistent principle. That's what people are used to, whether right or left. They're looking for it in Trump. They're looking for it on the Democratic side. And I think uh, Hillary Clinton will make a big mistake if she seems to swing opportunistically with the wind left to right over the next six months. It will cost her on the left with Sanders supporters and progressive Democratic voters generally it will cost her dearly with the very voters whom she now uh, you know, hopes to lure since those Republican voters, moderate Republican voters, are skeptical by and large of the Clintons in general, um, partly, for, uh, partly for very good reasons, the historic opportunism uh, of the Clintons, partly for 
because of smears like Benghazi, which is how I view it anyway. Um, but, you know, that electorate, the Republican electorate is going to stay home or they're just going to split their ticket and not vote the presidential line. Republicans are not going to elect Hillary Rodham Clinton or Bernie Sanders president. It is going to take a high turnout, high registration, democratic, progressive, young and old, intergenerational, uh, immigrant and African-American high turnout kind of campaign, a very progressive campaign to motivate people and beat Trump. There's a new poll out uh, by the Washington Post, uh, ABC News, and it doesn't look good for Hillary Clinton. It looks great for Bernie Sanders. We'll get to him in a second, okay? But right now, they're comparing Hillary Clinton to Donald Trump, uh, and it's 46% for Donald Trump, 44%. What in the world? She's losing. Oh my God, she's losing. Now, we've been showing you poll after poll where he was catching up, and in some of the polls, he tied her, or in some of the polls, he was close. Now, in the Washington Post ABC News poll, he's winning by two points, within the margin of error still. But my God, look at this turn of events. Is that the headline? Nope, that's not the headline of the story. Okay, uh, but they acknowledge that represents an 11 point shift toward the presumptive Republican nominee since March, okay? Now, it's not just that he's winning, it's that he, there was an 11 point shift. So that is among, uh, in, in this poll specifically, and. And if you look at all the polling, that's happened in all the polls, okay? So that's a huge, huge story, the sea change in their, in their polling numbers. Washington Post framing, though, is curious. So uh, first of all, they're trying to have a positive spin on it for uh, Hillary Clinton anyway. They say, nonetheless, Clinton is rated ahead of Trump uh, across a range of attributes and issues. And she's seen as having superior experience temperament and personality to be president. But none of that should be the lead. That should be like later in the story, oh, but on the other hand, I guess there's a smidgen of good news for Hillary Clinton. She used to be winning by double digits, now she's losing to Trump. But okay, I guess she's got, you know, they think she has better experience. No, we're leading with that. Um, and they explain Trump is viewed as unqualified by a majority of adults, but he has strong appeal to voters as the anti-Clinton candidate who could bring change to Washington in an election year in which outsiders have thrived. See, right there, that, that is absolutely key. He's winning independence, and he's the change candidate, and she's the status quo candidate. That is disastrous. If, if that holds, that in, a, in an era and clearly in this election cycle, where people don't want the status quo, both on the Republican and Democratic side, there has been a, a revolution. I was going to say quiet, but it ain't. It hasn't been quiet. It has been a very loud revolution against the establishment. And she's the establishment candidate. Wow, she's in trouble. She's in real trouble. But that is not the headline for the Washington Post. The headline was, poll, 
election 2016 shapes up as a contest of negatives. Now that's true and that's an important part of the poll, but that's not the headline. The lead of the story is, oh my God, Donald Trump might win. In fact, right now he's leading. No, no, no they're, both, they're both negative, both negative. Let's not overfocus on Trump winning. No, 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 because to the establishment, Trump can't win. So see no evil, hear no evil, report no evil. If the polls are telling you one thing, they don't believe you're lying eyes, we're gonna redirect you somewhere else. Right in the beginning of the story, they also say, never in the history of the post-ABC poll have two major party nominees been viewed as harshly as Clinton and Trump. Again, true, and again, problematic for the Democratic Party. We already know what Trump is. You. I can't believe we're running a candidate if the things hold as they are now, who would be even more unfavorable on the Democratic side. That's unbelievable, right? But again, it's viewed as 50-50, oh, you know, 50-50. Um, they explain nearly six in 10 registered voters say they have a negative impressions of both major candidates. Overall, Clinton's net negative rating among registered uh, voters is minus 16, while Trump's is minus 17. Though Trump's numbers have improved since March, okay? So, look, the fact that she is close in unfavorable numbers and yes, in the overall polling is not something that you should be like, well, don't worry about it, at least she's close. No, not at least she's close. She should be killing him. And by the way, she was. In earlier polls, she was leading by 11 points, and she's not anymore. That trend where she is now losing. It should be by any rational standard the focus of the story. But no, the Washington Post cannot have it that Hillary Clinton will lose. She will not lose, she will not lose. I mean, look at what they did to Sanders, right? They, the famous 16 negative headlines in 16 hours, and that wasn't all the scathing op-eds against Bernie Sanders. We can't have Bernie Sanders because Hillary Clinton's the better nominee. Well, it turns out she's not, and now the numbers are in. Doesn't matter, doesn't matter, they're both bad, they're both bad. Okay, we gotta cover it up, okay? And now when I say that, I don't want anybody to get the wrong impression. The guys who write this story, they don't think they're in the middle of covering anything up. If you told them that, they'd look at you like you got two heads on. Like, no, you're crazy, man, we're not biased. No, you live in the Washington bubble, where the status quo is seen as wonderful. Well, what a studied, great politician, policy wonk Hillary Clinton. No, the rest of the country hates the status quo, hates the establishment that you're in. That's why Trump being the change candidate means he can win, but they can't see straight. Their bias is, pro, is like, no, 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 no. Of course, it's, of course, the establishment candidate is going to win, right? Of course, Donald Trump can't win. Well, you're wrong. He can win. Look at your own poll. Okay. Now let's dive into more specifics. <laughs> they at least acknowledge, quote, Clinton is the embodiment of political experience and Trump is a symbol of the outsider promising big change. Now I say they acknowledge because they, but really they're not acknowledging that one is better than the other. They're just acknowledging that obvious fact. But I can tell you right now, the country is in a change mood. They're not in a, oh yes, the establishment is wonderful. It's great that she has all that experience in the status quo mood. And I'm not saying that because that's how I feel. I'm saying that because Bernie Sanders made up a 60 point deficit in the national rankings against Hillary Clinton in one year, a guy with no name recognition. Donald Trump beat 16 other Republicans to win this because he was an outsider going for change. Wakey, wakey, establishment media, you're totally wrong and you're asleep at the wheel. All right, now, more specific. 
Trump holds a huge lead among men, while she has a substantial though smaller lead among women. Clinton also meets some resistance among Democratic men. That is a huge red flag. Now, everybody talks about like, <laughs> Trump can't win, she's got a big lead among women. Yeah, but what you never hear is that he's got a huge lead among men. He's even winning with some Democratic men. Not winning overall, but he's winning them over. And she's now seeing erosion in those numbers. If Hillary Clinton can't hold Democratic men, Donald Trump's gonna win the election. So, and he's attacking her in all the ways that pushes those guys' buttons. And meanwhile, the establishment media is like, see no evil, hear no evil, report no evil. No, 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 no. <laughs> Don't be ridiculous. Of course, Hillary's gonna win. That's not what the numbers say. Okay, are you ready for this? Look at this. Trump is winning. 57% of white voters, while Clinton gets just 33%. Wow, 57 to 33 among white voters. Remember what Hillary Clinton's team was saying against Bernie Sanders? Oh no, no, he just does well among white voters. I don't know if you know this, the majority of the country is white. Meanwhile, you're getting hammered by Donald Trump among white voters. Does she do better with minority voters? Of course she does. But believe it or not, it's all relative to previous elections. Donald Trump is doing better with Latinos than Mitt Romney did. What? He's doing better with minorities than Mitt Romney did. I know it seems unbelievable, but it is. It's real. To ignore reality doesn't change it. It only makes your situation worse because you're not adjusting to the facts on the ground. So as crazy as that sounds, it's true, and he is clobbering her among whites. Red flag, red flag, iceberg straight ahead. But all of Washington's like, what iceberg? I don't see any iceberg. Okay, here we go with more. Trump's narrow overall lead among registered voters comes mainly from his current strength among independents who prefer him to Clinton by 13 points. <laughs> if only there was a Democratic candidate in the race who did better with independent voters. Oh, right, there is. It's Bernie Sanders, the guy that the Democratic establishment, in their infinite wisdom, told the whole country can't win. But wait a minute, his main, Trump's main strength is with independent voters. Bernie Sanders beats Donald Trump with independent voters. No, 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 he can't win. Don't be ridiculous. No, we're going to go with the status quo candidate. That'll definitely work. Okay, now finally they turn to Sanders. And <laughs> look at what they say. Meanwhile, Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont. Who has given Clinton a stiff challenge in the contest for the Democratic nomination enjoys the most positive rating of the three. Among registered voters, Sanders is net positive 49 to 41 and has seen his image improve steadily the longer he has been a candidate. Hmm, that's mentioned near the end of the article. Oh, by the way, there's still a guy in the race who actually would kill Donald Trump. But shh, he's like, he can't, no way, no, it can't be Bernie. It can't be Bernie. It's definitely got to be the establishment candidate. She would do better. But the polling indicates she would do much, much worse. Nope, can't have it. I like that last part, though. His image has improved steadily the longer he's been a candidate. Wait a minute, I thought the whole argument against Bernie Sanders was, no, he hasn't been attacked yet. If, you know, if he was, the race kept going and he got attacked, well, then he couldn't withstand that scrutiny and he'd lose those numbers. First of all, she's been attacking from day one. She ran negative ads, and that's uh, proven. And right now, there's Hillary Clinton surrogates out there running pieces of if the Republicans were to attack Bernie Sanders, this is how they would do it. Sounds like OJ's book. 
if I were to have killed those two people, this is how I would have done it, right? So then they list all the attacks against Bernie Sanders and go, well, well, I didn't attack him. I'm just saying if the Republicans had attacked him, they would call him a Trotskyite and this and that and all the different things that they list. Yeah, he's been attacked. He's been attacked. In fact, they ran against him on all those issues when he was running for Senate. It didn't work. He won anyway. You know why? Because despite what everybody in the establishment says, independents like him. They find him honest and trustworthy. But they can't get it through their heads because that's not their worldview. Their worldview is Bernie Sanders would change things. Exactly right. That's why they like him, and that's why you can't stand him. No, no, no. I, if, if I'm on top, if I'm well, the Washington Post, I'm TV news, I don't want things to change. Now, finally, let me put it all together for you. The Washington Post didn't. This is the numbers from their own poll, okay, Washington Post and ABC News. But when you see it together, you see how stark it is. So here's unfavorable to favorable rate, uh, ratings, as I just told you. Donald Trump's at minus 17. Historically low numbers. Hillary Clinton right behind him at minus 16. Bernie Sanders is at plus eight. <laughs> That's a 24 point difference between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. But this is the same Bernie Sanders that was argued against in this same Washington Post over and over and over again. <laughs> unelectable, obviously unelectable. I mean, he's 24 points better in favorability than the one we think is super electable. What? They're so biased, they can't even see their own bias. They're so blinded by it, they live in that Washington bubble. It's that old saying about the fish. They ask the fish, how's the water? He says, what water? To them, the establishment must always be right and the system must be maintained. And if the numbers indicate otherwise, we just ignore them. We just heard clips featuring Amy Goodman explaining how the media is ruining elections. Counterspend took a look at the real legacy of Clintonism and its effects on the Democratic Party. Lee Camp on Redacted Tonight highlighted MSNBC's plan to call the election for Clinton long before all the votes are counted. Lisa Featherstone, a socialist feminist, explained on Start Making Sense why she doesn't support Clinton in the primary. The Majority Report broke down Noam Chomsky's explanation of why you should vote for the Democratic nominee if you live in a swing state. This Week in Blackness explained why they hope millennials will vote and avoid hanging marginalized groups out to dry under a Trump presidency. Bruce Shapiro was interviewed on Start Making Sense about where Clinton is going wrong. And finally, we just heard Jank on the Young Turks sounding the alarm about how deeply unpopular both leading candidates are and how difficult it will be for Clinton to beat Trump. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is Rick from Scranton, Pennsylvania. I just listened to the episode on increasing happiness through uh, reducing uh, consumption. And I just wanted to share a quick little story about my own life that I thought was relevant after hearing your episode. In particular, I realized that I had been buying a lot less stuff and I didn't know why. And I sort of thought about things and I actually have been making more money at my job and I switched jobs and but I have been spending less and I realized it sort of coincided a lot with when I cut the cord on 
cable and went to uh, just watching everything on the internet. And also, I have Adblock installed on all of my browsers. And I realized I just see a lot less advertisements. And it wasn't something I consciously did, but I noticed that it has made a big difference. So maybe just doing what we can to reduce the advertisements pumping into our ears is, is maybe something that can help. Uh, in addition to that, a couple of small things I've done consciously are if I'm sort of, you know, shopping online for something, especially an expensive item, I've been leaving it in my shopping cart on whatever particular website. And then I'll come back a couple of days later and I've realized nine times out of ten that I'm glad I didn't buy that item. I really don't want it that much. And at the time, I really wanted it. And I thought that it would be, you know, I had a lot of reasons to convince myself. But sometimes just giving a little bit of space in between your initial impulse and the purchase can be a big help. And then it's also on clothes in particular, where in the past, I looked at a lot of old clothes that I had and just sort of, well, I need new clothes. Instead, I've forced myself to take all of my old clothes and try them on, you know, over, over a period of time, but one item at a time. And I found that a lot of clothes that I just thought of as being old because they were older still fit, looked and felt fine. And um, they no longer feel old now. They feel uh, new again. And I didn't have to buy new clothes. So anyway, I felt like I would share a couple of uh, quick items that were relative to my life. And if they can be relative to anyone else's, that's great. Anyway, keep up the good work. Thanks. Hey, Jay, it's Colin from Cleveland. Listening to a lot of different podcasts with the coverage of the Nevada Democratic Convention. And I have to tell you, uh, the way the establishment is acting is despicable, and it's everything that they claim the Republicans are. As a lifelong Democrat, this really, really sickens me and turns me away from the establishment even more than ever. And, uh, it amazes me that the establishment so egregiously doing everything they can to undermine Sanders' chances. And you know what? Not even undermine Sanders' chances. To undermine the democratic process in order to ensure what the establishment wants is disgusting. And at this point, the uh, support that Sanders is getting is undeniable. And the establishment can continue to do every underhanded, dirty, unethical, and unlawful trick they can to try to seal the deal against him. I don't think Bernie should drop out. I think he should take this all the way until the convention. And then, if at all possible, if they decide to totally screw him out of the convention, run on a third-party ticket. So, just my thoughts. And you hear all this stuff about the Republicans worrying about people running on, you know, third, you know, uh, independent tickets... I think that Bernie should continue to exploit the Democrats for being just as terrible as the Republicans and then try to take his wind in another direction and see who follows. Anyway, Jay, that's just my thoughts. Love the show. Bye. Hey, Jay, it's Anthony from Illinois. The past few weeks, 
with the some of the voicemails and some of your personal opinions uh, around the burning your bus movement have kind of left me with some larger questions about the idea of and practice of identity politics in this year's election especially. One of the things that I think is a valid critique of the burning your bus movement is the idea of whether or not, you know, the moral or mathematical idea of the vote will put someone like Donald Trump in the White House and, you know, the possibilities of actions being taken against, you know, our black, Latino or Latina citizens, you know, Muslims and other persons of color and or persons who are outside of the kind of wasp culture that Donald Trump's message has appeared to, you know, resonate so strongly with and has kind of really defined the political landscape this year. However, I think whenever we only discuss this idea of burning your bus members being morally and ethically culpable, responsible, which, you know, I think you kind of, you know, addressed well with your last comments in the most recent episode, I kind of wonder if our solitary focus on this idea of burning your bus misses kind of the larger questions persons such as myself have over kind of the whole plugging your nose and voting for Hillary Clinton. You know, I think when we only kind of identify it as the white male vote or something like that, or the Bernie bus vote kind of being solely unconcerned and unaware of, you know, minority status within the United States culture, I kind of have not seen any, in my opinion, adequate responses to Hillary Clinton's hawkish militaristic tendencies, her complete disavowal of anything that criticizes the state of Israel, you know, her affiliation with corporations, her past and even recent involvement with prison economics and things like that. So I think my larger question would be, you know, to what extent does our reliance on identity politics sometimes reinforce this idea of Western imperialistic tendencies that we're so focused on helping our own, which, you know, is understandably you know, important. And I think you would be hard pressed to find, or maybe not, people who are so involved who say, you know what, I don't care if this person has to be sacrificed to bring about change. But then my other question also is, to what extent does our, the idea of voting for the, sadder, for the lesser quo, and in some cases, you know, this idea of voting for the lesser of two eagles, how does that still come off as progressive and moral if this person is still adamant at continuing our economic, political, and war violence across people around the globe. So, you know, those were just some of the ideas that I've been wrestling with as someone who voted for Bernie Sanders in the election, or at least in my primary, but also who at this point in time is completely adamantly opposed to voting for Hillary Clinton for some of the reasons that I have outlined. Thanks for all the work that you do. Bye.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. First of all, a quick reminder that voting for the podcast awards has begun. It started on Sunday and runs for two weeks. You can vote every day between now and June 12th. So please do that. Go to podcastawards.com. Best of the left, of course, is in the news and politics category. So you can vote there every day. And so you should set a reminder for yourself, have a little calendar notification pop up and just remind you every day, take 30 seconds and vote for the show and any other shows you like in any of the other categories. I certainly endorse that. Now, today I have a quick response to Anthony from Illinois. We just heard on the voicemails talking about identity politics getting in the way of dealing with real problems. That's not how he said it, but that's how I'm saying it. Firstly, here's how I see it. Identity politics, the way it is very dismissively uh, referred to usually, for those who are not straight, white, able-bodied men, is really no different than economic politics is for a white guy who has nothing else really going against him. People deal with the problems that face them, and progressive white guys can see economic problems uh, on macro level, micro level. Maybe they're graduated from college during the recession and are struggling to get a job, or they see a lot of their friends going through that problem, or maybe they're doing fine, but they can see the statistics. They can see that the rich are getting richer and the poor are being left behind, and they recognize that as an injustice that needs to be rectified, and it's something they can wrap their mind around. That's cool. That's that's how that works. But by definition, they have a much harder time seeing problems of race or gender or sexuality or almost anything else. And that's not because they're bad people or that they want to be blind to those issues. It's just that by comparison, members of marginalized communities are going to be able to see problems that get labeled as identity politics much more clearly. And not only can they see those issues, but they're very often directly affected by them. So it is no question why it makes sense for them to want to prioritize those issues. Secondly, social and civil rights movements are tied in with the broader progressive movement in multiple very important ways. The first is that strong social movements help move the Overton window, the range of acceptable political rhetoric, and that's what makes room for candidates like Bernie Sanders. So an anti-racist or an anti-sexist or an anti-bigotry in all of its forms kind of movement is really no different than like the Fight for 15 or Occupy Wall Street or anti-private prisons or anti-war movements in that they make space on the political landscape for more progressive politicians to occupy that space and attract support. So I see these movements as, as sort of the fuel for the broader progressive movement, you know? Each of the individual social movements attracts people who are deeply passionate about that issue for one reason or another. So if you go around saying that their issue isn't as important as yours and that their identity politics is just a distraction, 
then you're probably only going to piss someone off and do nothing to gain enthusiasm for your issue. So the best thing to do, the way I see it, is to work to bring movements together by highlighting the links between each movement. You maintain the energy and enthusiasm that brought those people to their own issue by bringing movements together into a cohesive unit that respects and empowers each of its individual parts. So if you want to fight economic imperialism, but the only people you have on your side are the people who don't have any other problems to worry about except economic imperialism, then that's going to be a pretty small group. But if you're willing to listen to people about the problems they're having with, say, racism, for instance, and you support them in their struggle while making the connection to how racism helps lead us to imperialistic military campaigns to benefit the super wealthy, and we usually do it against brown people, well, if you've done it right, then you won't have pissed off anyone, and you will have found yourself an ally. Like I said, I think these social movements are like the fuel of the broader progressive movement. So if we go with the premise posed by the caller that focus on identity politics is a distraction from real issues of economic imperialism, then I think that's like saying you want to launch a rocket, but as a method of reducing the weight of the rocket, because you want to help it go faster, you're going to remove the fuel. Yeah, have fun trying to launch that rocket. The rest of us, we're going to step back and just watch it fall flat. Now, as just one example of the connection of so-called identity politics and economics, racism is easily one of, if not the biggest reason, we didn't implement European-style socialism during the New Deal era. And racism continues to be one of the biggest barriers to maintaining our social safety net. White people in Europe don't seem to mind setting up robust systems that redistributes wealth more evenly in their fairly homogeneous countries, and that results in them being among the happiest and most secure people in the world. But in America, we have enough people who, for consciously or unconsciously racist reasons, cannot stand the idea of people who don't look like them benefiting from a similar redistribution of wealth, and so they'd rather blow up the whole system, refuse to help anyone, even themselves, or their family and all their white friends, than to allow some help to go to the people they reflexively see as unworthy of help, who just happen to be a few shades darker than they are. So, yeah, I'm all in favor of totally revamping our economic system. But if we don't deal with the racism, we're never going to get the support we need to fundamentally change the way our economic system works. Because if we change the way our economic system works, it's going to help a lot of brown people. And a lot of people don't want to help brown people. That's kind of what it comes down to. So my argument is that if you want to break down capitalism and all of its imperialistic tendencies that lead us to war over and over again, then you'd better be ready to stand shoulder to shoulder with all of those movements fighting those fights that you may dismissively call identity politics, because those two movements are linked in such a way that you cannot do one without the other, whether you recognize it or not. Keep the comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there. And for details on the show itself, including 
including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained